turn to Numbers chapter 6. Looking at vows tonight, uh, V-O-W-S, not V-O-W-E-L-S, but vows, taking vows, a particular vow. Uh, we will be looking at from Numbers chapter 6. Let me stop this. This is distracting. Always is. Okay, there we go. Numbers chapter 6. I'll be reading the first six verses there. Remain seated. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, say to them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite to separate themselves unto the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dry. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree from the kernels even to the husk. All the days of the vow of his separation shall there no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled in the which he separated himself unto the Lord. He shall be holy and he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separates himself unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body. And so looking at vows tonight, and we want to start to... Uh, when I talk about vows, I think about monasteries, and I think I've told you this one before, but it's a classic anyway, and Scott, I know you I know you know it, but anyway, there was a man who was fed up with modern society, and so he decided to become a monk. He checked out a number of monasteries, and he chose the one he liked. The only reservation he had with it was he had to take a vow of silence and could only speak two words every year. So he took the vow, and he began his first year of service without saying a word. At the end of the first year, he was brought before the head of the monastery and was asked what two words he'd like to say. And his response was, food bad. After two years of service, he was brought before the head of the monastery and asked what two words he'd like to say. And his response was, more blankets. After three years of service, he was brought before the head of the monastery and asked what two words he'd like to say. His response was, I quit. The head monk answered back, you might as well. You've done nothing but complain since you've been here. So anyway, see, he spoke six words. Eh, I'm not going to explain it to you. All right, so anyway, let's look at vows. First of all, Nazarite vows to God. You see here when I was reading that, this is a special vow to God. It's called a Nazarite vow. Now, it is, is a special separation for a man or a woman, and it's called Nazarite because the Hebrew word nezer means separated. So it makes sense. A Nazarite, nezer means separated. And so this person, or they would be separating themselves um, to God. It was voluntary, total consecration of service to God. So nobody made anybody take a Nazarite vow. It's not something you had to do. It was something you chose to do. But if you did it, you needed to do it right. And it was also to last for a specific uh, period of time. Sometimes for life, and we're going to see that, uh, but sometimes people just take a Nazarite vow for a short period of time. Uh, the scriptures don't put a time limit on it. But if somebody was a Nazarite for life, well, then obviously that would be for the rest of their lives. But if they said, you know, I'm going to take a Nazarite vow for six months, a year, whatever it might be, uh, that was up to them. Now, here's the details of the Nazarite vow. First of all, verse 3 says no alcohol. No alcohol. I think you got that. It says wine, strong drink. It talks about vinegar of wine, vinegar of strong drink. Uh, no liquor. I mean, it's uh, pretty pretty specific covering all the bases. I'm not really good about alcohol. Maybe you know more about it. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but I think pretty much verse 3 covers everything alcoholic. It is a denial of pleasure. Uh, that You know, pleasure might come from drinking alcohol, but the Nazarite would say, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to engage in that. But notice, you not only can't drink the stuff, you can eat nothing from the vine at all. You can't eat grapes or raisins. 
Some people forget that of the Nazarite vow. They know it's no alcohol. Uh, but did you notice that? You know, uh, the end of verse 3 says you can't eat moist grapes or dried. Okay, so no raisins. If you're a big fan of raisins, you can't do that if you're going to take a Nazarite vow. Let me just pause and say this is not a proof text for the, uh, for the temperance movement uh, that, you know, people shouldn't be drinking alcohol. This is not a proof text, although it was probably used as such. Uh, preachers would probably rail from the pulpits and say, look what the Bible says. It says there you should not drink any wine and so on. Uh, this is not a proof text for that. Uh, when you read the scriptures, you find out God's people could drink alcohol. Even the priests could drink alcohol. However, in the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, drunkenness is always prohibited. Always prohibited. No exception. Uh, just not drinking. This was a special circumstance where alcohol could not be drunk. So uh, the first part of Nazarite vow, no alcohol. second part, if you look in verse 5, no haircut. I already read that. I'm not going to read it again. No haircut. So whereas the alcohol was a denial of pleasure, the haircut would be the denial of adornment. Okay, so, you know, make yourself look uh, nice or whatever. Wouldn't be doing that if you take the Nazarite vow. And this would be an external sign of holiness. So when people saw your hair getting kind of crazy, they'd say, oh, well, you know, he has separated himself or she has separated herself for Nazarite vow. And then the third part of the Nazarite vow we find in verse 6, and that is to touch nothing dead. Touch nothing dead. You can't even mourn for close relatives. Look at verse 7. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die because the consecration of his God is upon his head. So uh, he is not to touch anything dead or she, uh, not even for close relatives. Now look at verses 9 through 12. If somebody dies by him, so he's in the midst of his Nazarite vow and he's right by somebody who keels over, then what? Well, that's in there. Verse 9, and if any man die very suddenly by him, and he has defiled the head of his consecration. Then shall he shave his head in the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. On the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall offer the one for sin offering, the other for burnt offering, and make an atonement for him for that he sinned by the dead and shall hallow his head that same day. And he shall consecrate unto the Lord the days of his separation and shall bring a lamb of the first year for a trespass offering. But the days that were before shall be lost because the separation was defiled. So if somebody just dies and like lands in your lap, okay, you've got this vow going on and you touch them. You didn't mean to even. You just touched them because they killed over next to you. What do you do? Well, you got to shave your head, you got to make an offering, and you got to start over. That's what it says. What is all this? Well, death is a direct result of sin. And so we talked about this last week, how death is representative of sin. Death is representative of unholiness. And so if you're going to separate yourself, you're going to holy, you're going to separate, <laughs> holy means to be separate. So if you're going to separate yourself as a, as a holy function in this vow, you're not to touch things that are dead because dead is symbolic or representative of unholiness. Now, the person that took this vow was saying that he was wholly devoted to God and he was wholly devoted to God. Now, I didn't just repeat myself, but you can't see my notes. He was saying he was holy, another W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, completely devoted to God, but also wholly devoted to God. Look in verse 8. All the days of his separation, he is holy unto the Lord. So, he is wholly devoted to God with a W, and he's wholly devoted to God with an H. 
The Nazarite was not to be focusing on what was given up. He wasn't to be to focus on the denial. Again, I said no alcohol, that was a denial of pleasure. No haircut was a denial of adornment. Uh, touching nothing dead, it would, it would be a denial of unholiness. But he was not to focus on what was given up. He was not to focus on his denial. He was to focus on what is demonstrated, which is devotion to God. Now, what about when you get to the end of your vow? And so whether it's a month, six months, a year, however long it was, what do you do? Well, verses 13 through 17, lay that out for us, says this, and this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. He shall offer his offering to the Lord, uh, one he lamb of the first year without blemish for a burnt offering, one you lamb of the first year without blemish for a sin offering, one ram without blemish for a peace offering. And a basket of unleavened bread... Cakes of fine flour mingled with oil and wafers of unleavened bread anointed with oil and their meat offering and their drink offerings and the priest shall bring them before the Lord and shall offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord with a basket of unleavened bread and the priest shall offer his meat offering and his drink offering. So when you're done with this thing, you make an offering. And I don't know if you notice as I read that, it is to be an expensive offering. It is to be an extensive offering. And it is to be an expressive offering. It is to be expensive, it is to be extensive, and it is to be expressive. And then, look in verse 18, you then cut your hair and burn it with the other offering. And the Nazarite shall shave the head of his separation at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, shall take the hair of the head of his separation, put it in the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offerings. Do we know from the scriptures, and I'm asking this rhetorically, do we know any Nazarites? We know this is the Nazarite vow, but do we know any from the scriptures? Maybe some famous Nazarites. Well, one would be Samson. Okay, Samson, we're going to spend a little bit more time talking about him. Samuel is yet another one, the prophet Samuel. He was a Nazarite. It is suspected that John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Uh, we don't know for sure, but I'll tell you where the evidence is. It's in Matthew chapter 11. I'll read it to you. Uh, Matthew chapter 11 and uh, verses 18 and 19. It says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he has a devil. The son of man came eating and drinking. They said, Behold, a man gluttonous, wine-bibber, friend of publicans and sinners. So anyway, uh, that's the not drinking part of it. And, uh, but we don't know about his hair and so on. But anyway, he's suspected to be a, uh, a Nazarite. And then, perhaps even, the Apostle Paul. Now, he was not a Nazarite for life, but when you read in uh, Acts chapter 18, uh, it talks about how he had a vow to keep, and he shaved his head. Now, when you have this vow, you're not supposed to shave your head. But it says there in Acts 18 that he shaved his head because he had a vow. So what does that mean? Well, maybe he was getting ready to start his vow, and he didn't want to look so crazy, and so he shaved his head before he started. Or maybe he just finished his vow, and then he shaved. We're not sure, but I'm just saying we suspect that uh, these are some Nazarites. Now, let's go back to Samson. We know that Samson uh, had a Nazarite vow. He didn't take it, though. His mom did on his behalf uh, because she says she's praying to God. You probably know the story, Hannah and all that stuff. And uh, she's praying, and she says... Uh, no, I'm sorry, that's Samuel. Excuse me, that's Samuel. I'm talking about Samson. It almost sounds the same. Uh, Samson, I want to talk about Samson, not Samuel. Uh, Samson. Samson, of course, the strongest man, you know, the big strong guy. And uh, he had a Nazarite vow as well. And what he did was he broke his vow one step at a time. And so he started, first of all, by touching something dead. This is in Judges 14.9, where the scriptures tell us 
uh, that he killed a lion with his bare hands. Now, you know, if you kill the lion, it, you're touching it. It's, gonna, it's dead at some point, and you touched it. But maybe he killed it, like it almost died, and then he threw it, and then it died. But it says there he came back later. Bees had built a nest in there, and he came and he ate honey out of the inside of that lion. He definitely touched something dead. Not only that, a chapter later in Judges 15, 15, we learn that uh, Samson killed a bunch of Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. You might say, well, he might have been swinging that jawbone and uh, he killed them, but he never actually touched them. Guess what? The jawbone is death. All right? So he definitely broke that. And, and what we're going to see here is Samson broke his Nazarite vow one step at a time. And I forgot to tell you, over the course of 20 years, over the course of 20 years, it took him to break uh, all three aspects. The second thing was uh, he was supposed to he was supposed to stay away from alcohol. And in Judges 14 and verse 10, it doesn't specifically say that Samson drank alcohol, but it does say he threw a party for a week. And like everybody was there, this was the big thing. This was the to-do. And there was plenty of drink flowing freely. I can't imagine he didn't partake. And so over the course of 20 years, he begins to break the Nazarite vow. So uh, he touches something dead. And then what happened to him after that? Nothing. And so a little while later, then he has this big party and he drinks some alcohol. What happened to him? Nothing. So I think in his own mind, he started to think, well, you know what? Uh, yes, I have this vow, but I broke two of the things. Nothing happened to me, so no big deal. And so it comes down to Delilah wants to know the secret of his strength. And he, he finally tells her, you know, he really leads her on for quite a while, but he finally tells her, you cut my hair and I'll be weak. But he didn't believe it. You know why? Because he broke the dead thing. That didn't hurt him. He drank the alcohol. That didn't hurt him. So he figured, she's going to cut my hair. It's not going to affect me. But sure enough, when she cut his hair, that was the third aspect of the Nazarite vow. Because you see, we teach our children in Sunday school that Samson got his power from his hair. Guess what? He didn't get his strength from his hair. He got his strength from God. And when his hair got cut... That was when he finally put the nail in his own coffin. He broke the dead thing. He broke the alcohol thing. Then when he broke the hair thing, that was it. And God's like, all right, you're on your own. Let's see, strong man, how strong you are. Now, I'm very well aware when Samson is there in that big uh, coliseum or whatever it was with the Philistines, the Bible says his hair began to grow. And, of course, he got his strength back, and he was able to knock those pillars down. What the Bible doesn't say, but I'd like to read between the lines, is not only did his hair start to grow, but he was in such a situation uh, that he certainly couldn't drink alcohol, and he didn't touch anything dead. And so I think he retook his Nazarite vow, and God honored that. And, of course, God used that to defeat the Philistines. But again, nobody gets their strength from their hair, not even Samson. They get their strength from God. And as long as Samson was keeping his vow, God was honoring that. Even though he broke it along the way, he didn't break all three aspects, but immediately upon the breaking of the third aspect, that was it. His strength was gone. All right, so the Nazarite vow to God. Now you know everything. You really almost know everything there is to know about a Nazarite vow. That's it, that what we have here. 
and the suspicions that we have of some of these other people. So let's talk now, secondly, that applies to us, our vows to God. Okay, that's a Nazarite vow to God. What about our vows to God? Well, marriage is a vow to God. You might take an oath in the courtroom. That's a vow to God. I took a vow to God in high school. I think I've shared this with you. But I vowed to God that I would never drink alcohol. And I was getting ready to go to college. You know, that's a big thing in college. You go to college and you drink a lot of alcohol. That's what you're supposed to do. People can't see this on the recording. I'm making air quotes. That's what you're supposed to do. But I made a vow to God that I would not drink alcohol. And I have kept that vow. I haven't drunk alcohol. Now, I might have had alcohol in something like when they fix you a fancy dessert or something and it has a whatever in it and they cook it out. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about just I know I have an alcoholic drink sitting in front of me and drink it. I haven't touched this stuff ever since I made that vow. The Bible is very clear. When you make a vow to God, you better keep it. And the Bible is very clear. It says this. It is better to not make a vow than to make a vow and break it. God expects us to keep our vow. He keeps his, and guess what? We're to be like he is, aren't we? And when you think about it as a Christian, every promise you make includes God because you claim to be a Christian. And Christian, the first six letters of that title is Christ. And so as a Christian, when you promise anybody anything, you are including God in that promise. And God expects us to keep our vow. So what does a Nazarite vow have to do with Christianity? Well, the Nazarite is an Old Testament law, and it's not required, from, not required of anyone, including Christians, anymore. Nobody has to keep the Nazarite vow. But when you think about it, the Christian life is a life wholly devoted to God. When you live the way Christians are supposed to live, it is a life wholly devoted to God. Uh, what did we say about the Nazarite? He was wholly devoted to God. He was wholly devoted to God. Remember that? And the Christian life is one that is wholly devoted to God. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 9, 62, anybody putting his hand to the plow and even just looking back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Wholly devoted to God. Genuine faith will affect all of your life. If you've got genuine faith, it will affect every aspect of your life. There's nothing where you say, well, I'm a Christian, but it really doesn't affect me at work. I'm a Christian. It doesn't really affect me at school. Or I'm a Christian. It doesn't affect me at home. If you're truly, if you have genuine faith, it will affect every single area of your life. And think about this. The Nazarite vow affected what they consumed. It affected what they looked like. It affected what they did. Well, other than thoughts, what else is there? I mean, you eat. You look in the mirror. You do things? Well, the Nazarite, that affected all of that. What they ate, what they looked like, and what they did. It affected their entire life. And genuine faith should affect our entire life. Christians are similar to Nazarites, though. Uh, what about this aspect of no alcohol? Well, uh, we already established we're not to be drunk. We know that. But as Baptists, we promote abstinence. Because if you abstain from alcohol, you can't get drunk. Okay, Because I don't know how many beers it takes you or how many beers it would take me. I mean, I have no idea. But I do know this. If you never touch this stuff, you'll never get drunk. The Bible also is clear in Romans 14 that we are not to cause another to stumble. And this is really the, the big one for me. I would never want somebody to see me drinking alcohol of any variety and say, well, He's a Christian. He's a preacher. He's doing it. I'm going to do it. 
And this was especially important with our children because we were told, our, the children that we adopted, we were told of uh, their past and they had alcoholic parents. And they said uh, statistically it was quite possible that if they drank alcohol, that might send them right down the road to alcoholism. And I didn't want to do that either. My children never, ever saw me drink anything alcoholic. I didn't want to cause them to stumble, but I don't want to cause anybody else to stumble either. In fact, when you think about it, you know, when we talk about no alcohol, and that was a denial of pleasure for the Nazarite, any earthly pleasure that hinders our relationship to Christ, we need to get rid of. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be sinful, but if it hinders our relationship with Christ, well, I guess that would make it sinful, wouldn't it? And so no alcohol, we see there's a similarity there. How about no haircut? Well, our physical appearance can be attractive, but we must not be vain. That reminds me of jokes. See if I can tell. It's not in my notes. There was this girl. She goes to the Catholic priest for confession, and she says, Father, forgive me. I've sinned. He said, What did you do? She said, Well, I look in the mirror, and I just see how beautiful I am. And he looks through his little window, and he says, Oh, my sister, uh, don't worry about it. Uh, you haven't sinned. You're just mistaken. Uh, but anyway, so again, it's okay if you're attractive. That's fine. But we're not to be vain. And yet at the same time, our holiness should be visible. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew uh, <laughs> chapter 5, I can't read my notes. Chapter 5 and verse 16, he says, Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So our holiness should be visible. 1 Peter 1.16, he says, You be holy even as I am holy, saith the Lord. And what about touching nothing dead? How could we apply that to us as Christians? Well, we as believers should not dwell on death. We should dwell on life. But Jesus isn't about death. He's about life. And we must not trust our good works for salvation. Now, the reason I include good works with this idea of death, listen to what the writer of Hebrews puts in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1, what he calls uh, our good works. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundations of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. So trying to trust our good works for salvation, that's just dead. And so we don't focus on death. We focus on life. So I said that uh, the Nazarite vow here in Numbers chapter 6, that's Old Testament stuff. We're not responsible to do that. However, Nazarite vows are permissible for Christians today. I want to tell you a little story. Uh, when I was in seminary, we had good friends lived across the hall, kind of catacorner across the hall from us. And uh, this guy was really funny. He was, uh, he and his wife, but he, she was just nice, but he was funny. And so you never knew what to expect out of him, but uh, I just started noticing over the course of a few weeks that, I mean, his hair was getting so unruly. And it was just getting worse and worse. And I thought, I've talked to Debbie about it. It's like, maybe maybe they don't have money. Because a lot of people in seminary were poor. I know I was. And, uh, um, you know, maybe they didn't have money for a haircut or something. And it just kept getting worse and worse and longer and longer. And so finally I asked him, I said, dude. <laughs> Do you need some money for a haircut? Because I used to get my haircut. They had a, a barber school like down the street there in New Orleans. And I'd go down there and they'd charge you, I don't know, $3 or something. You know, you get a haircut. Of course, it was the person's first day. <laughs> Might not be a very good haircut. But when you're young, it doesn't matter because it grows back. But anyway, um, the, so fact of the matter is just I asked him, I said, what is the deal with your hair? And he said, well, 
He said, I didn't really want to tell anybody, but I knew people would start asking. He said, I took a Nazarite vow. Well, I knew exactly what that meant. He already didn't drink alcohol. And, uh, you know, I'm, I don't think he had any intentions of touching somebody dead. If he got called to the funeral, he doesn't have to touch the dead body. You know, he could view but not touch. But he was letting his hair grow. And here's the thing. He went to seminary, same time I did, and he was studying for the ministry. But he didn't feel like he belonged there. He just, there was something in his spirit. He just didn't feel like he belonged there. So he decided to take a Nazarite vow until God let him know what he was supposed to do. And God did, in short order, let him know. And I knew when God finally spoke to him. You know why? He got his hair cut and he looked good again. He was a very good looking guy. But he looked horrible when he took his vow. God has, in turns out, God had not called him to the, the, uh, the minute, I can't think, the professional ministry like what I do. He was calling him to medical ministry. And so he left seminary, and he had just, just had to go about five blocks up the road to the University of New Orleans where he enrolled in the medical program. And so he began to study to become a doctor. He wanted to be a missionary doctor. But see, God didn't want him to be a preacher, per se, like what I am. He wanted him to be a medical missionary. And so he knew he's taking all these classes and stuff, and he's like, this doesn't fit, it doesn't belong. So he took the Nazarite vow till God spoke to him, and he did, and he became a doctor missionary. I don't know, maybe you need an answer to something in your life. It would not be wrong for you to take a Nazarite vow. If you're a good Baptist, the alcohol part, that's no problem at all. It's really just the hair. <laughs> it's just, I don't know what you're supposed to do, Glenn. I just really, I don't have an answer for that. I know you were going to ask me. I don't know what you're supposed to do. Let it grow. <laughs> That's right. Okay. So that wasn't in my notes to talk to Glenn either. But anyway, so we see the Nazarite vow to God. We see our vows to God. Lastly, I want us to look at God's vow to us. God's vow to us. He will bless his people. You're in Numbers chapter 6. Go to verse 27. It says, And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. God will bless his people. That word bless means to show favor. He will give us reason to be grateful to him. Indeed, it is God's will that we are thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. God has given us permission to invoke his name. We are greatly honored to call ourselves Christians. And we can call upon God anytime and anywhere for any reason. Numbers chapter 6 begins with what's called the priestly benediction. The priestly benediction. And the word benediction, if you ever hear that, uh, sometimes I will say it at the end of a service, I'll say, would so-and-so... Uh, pray the benediction. Usually I just say, would you close us in prayer? But sometimes I'll use the word benediction. And that's just a big word. Bene means well, okay? Just like if something is beneficial, it's something good. So bene means well, and diction means to speak. Like a dictionary, that's where all the words are, right? So a benediction is good words. That's what it is. So when I say, or somebody says, pray the benediction, they say, give us some good words, okay? Give us good words. And here is the priestly benediction. And by the way, it begins in verse 24. And some pastors, my dad will sometimes, he will use this very uh, 
quote this passage as his benediction. Here's what it says. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And so the priestly benediction as Numbers chapter 6 is closed out, it begins with the blessing. It talks about keeping, that word keep. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. Keep means to sustain. He says, make his face to shine upon you. That is, says, may God look favorably upon you and be gracious to you. We know what grace is. And lift up his countenance upon you, verse 26, and give you peace. The word peace there in the Hebrew is shalom, shalom. Peace is not the absence of war. Shalom peace is a state of rightness and well-being that comes from God. In the New Testament, in Philippians 4, 7, Paul calls it the peace that passes all understanding. That verse epitomizes what shalom really is. We know the Israelites, they did a lot of warfare, didn't they? But God, even in the midst of the warfare, he wanted them to have shalom, peace, a state of rightness and well-being that comes from God. And nowadays, if you want to have a state of rightness with God and well-being that comes from God, that only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that relationship begins by believing that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins, that he was buried for your sins, and he rose again the third day. I don't think it's possible, but maybe it is. There could be somebody in this room tonight who has yet to receive Christ as their personal Savior. Don't wait another day. Don't wait another moment. Receive Christ as your Savior, and you will receive shalom that comes only from God. Tonight I will pray the benediction by reading the benediction. Let's pray. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen.